When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Michael Cashman, the co-founder of Stonewall, former MEP and ex-EastEnders star, on his new book, One of Them, From Albert Square to Parliament Square, which is a memoir on his fascinating life in the worlds of entertainment and politics. In this podcast, he is interviewed on his long-ranging and fascinating career by Razia Iqbal of the BBC, and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode. For those of our listeners who are in London, we want to flag up an event that we're staging. On Tuesday, the 17th of March, we have Jim Al-Khalili. Jim Al-Khalili is one of the nation's best-known broadcasters and physicists. And we're staging an event with him titled The World According to Physics. And it's all about why physics matters, what can the study of physics, of energy, force, matter, and the behavior of matter through space and time, what can that teach us about the universe and what can that teach us about the nature of reality itself? Jim will be appearing in conversation with another physicist, Helen Zersky. She's one of the UK's most popular science presenters and they will be appearing in conversation at Church House in Westminster. Like I said, that'll be on Tuesday, the 17th of March and we look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like to buy tickets, please do so on our website, intelligencesquared.com. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal, presenter for the BBC. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. Now, you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Michael Cashman, actor, activist, member of the European Parliament, co-founder of Stonewall and member of the House of Lords. None of these things reveal where you came from. So let's start Mm -hmm. with that, because the opening of this book is a a, a just extraordinary depiction, almost Dickensian depiction of your life as a child growing up in the East End of London. You were born in Mile End. Just outline for us what that was that was like. It was incredibly exciting. And also the interesting thing about poverty is when you're used to it, you, you have nothing to compare it with. So growing up in the docks the uh, in the east end it was like being in this amazing black and white film 
that came into colour soon as the day began. There were ships arriving from all across the world. There was cargo lorries and horse and carts carrying all the merchandise around the docks. And, and in amongst it was this huge council estate that that, that we lived in. My mum, who was a, a, a very proud office cleaner. My dad, who was a docker, who worked in the docks and often helped himself rather than helping the containers that he was unloading. <laughs> uh, so it was an incredibly exciting place in, in which to live and to fantasise. And, and that's how you, you kind of got through the mundanity of when poverty hit, when there was no money. But I, I suppose for me, being the second child and very early on knowing how different I was from other boys, I sought refuge in my, in my games and my imagination. So, so it, it, it was tough, but it prepared me for life in, in an amazing way, but it didn't prepare me for some of the things that would happen to me when I was so young. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about one of the first things that happened to you when you were very young, which was so brutal. You were eight and mm. you, you, you were asked to come with a, a man somewhere and you went. And, and the thing about that is that you were so incredibly trusting. I mean, he offered you a shilling, mm. um, which was, you know, incentive, no doubt. But, but just, just tell us about that episode, because it, it, it's one of several pretty shocking things that happens to you in your life. It, it, it. It was pretty shocking, but but let me just say that unless we, unless we own the shocking things that happen to us in life, we become owned by them, and bury them as much as I did, and as much as we do, they resurface when you very you very least expect them, and that's when they become demons. So I was running home. I can see it now. I can see the street. I'm passing the pub where my mum and dad used to drink, and I used to sit outside with my brothers. And he was there, and he asked me if I'd like to earn a shilling. And so I went with him. And the thing was, you were taught as a child uh, that children should be seen and not heard. That was what my dad used to say. And that you, you always respected adults. And I followed this man down the alleyway that led to the Thames at the, the bottom of the alley, and he lifted me onto the wall. And immediately I thought, ah, oh, I know now he, why he's giving me a shilling. He wants me to break in somewhere for him. And Something and that you were prepared to do? Some, something that my dad used to get me to do, particularly when he was drunk on a Saturday, Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, and you would be put through a fan light and you'd be expected to unbolt the door if it was bolted on the inside or turn the latch. But this, I suddenly remembered thinking, but this is different. I'm doing this for someone I, I don't know. And we got over the wall and he guided me along this, this, this alley. And then suddenly I was thrown into the back of a trailer uh, where he abused me. And, and all I kept thinking was, why? What have I done to him? Why is he doing this to me? And I went home afterwards. I listened to him, his his feet running away, in in the in the darkness of the silence, and then I thought I can go home now, and I went home, and and I my dad gave me a wallop for being out late. It was dark, and I sat inside our little sitting room, everyone watching the television in, in the dark, and I thought good, 
No one can see that I've been crying. No one can see that the buckle on my belt is broken. And I knew I mustn't tell anyone. How, how did you know? Why did you not think, actually, I'd quite like to tell my mother? One simple word, trouble. You are taught. You don't cause trouble. You don't get into trouble. I couldn't then have found the, the vocabulary to describe it. And if I had, you then have to reason with, will I be believed? And then if I'm believed, there will be trouble. And I will be blamed for causing the trouble. And, and that was why I never told anyone. And, uh, and developed a wonderful mechanism to forget and to imagine uh, and to play. But I think the really upsetting thing was that even at the age of eight, I knew I was different. I knew I was the girls were my friends and boys were the common enemy that we, we fancied. And I thought when it happened with him and when it happened subsequently with others, I thought, have I got an invisible sign on my forehead that says you can do it to me because I'm different? You can do it to me because I won't tell. Do you think but, you know the answer to that? I think it was that I gave off. When I look back at those photographs, there's this boy, desperate to be loved, smiling out at the world, not frightened of the world. Um, and and I was interested in, in what the world could throw at me. So I, I think I was, I was a soul in search of friends, in search of belonging, actually. I that, I think, is the truth of it. As you were growing up, you discovered that you loved to perform, you loved to sing and dance, and your family encouraged that in, you know, in, in pubs and in the home as well. But it also prompted your mother to talk to her friends about the possibility that you could be one of them, hmm. which is the title, of course, of the memoir. And, and I, I wonder what you, what you thought then, because you do write about it in the book over, over a period of time, of, of the perception of you by others. Terrified, terrified to, for people to know that you knew you didn't belong. That, that you weren't a part of, you weren't the same as every, everybody else. And, and, uh, and as, as each of us knows in one way, when a difference is used against us, it, it, is, it is terrifyingly isolating. And I remember that. So my mum got me to dance for my favourite aunt Eileen, and, and she was my favourite aunt because she had this magical thing of suddenly having teeth and then having no teeth. She, she, I didn't realise then that they were just false teeth. <laughs> and she got me to dance for Eileen. I think it was to a Paul Anker record. And I jigged and jived around that room. And I heard, and they were laughing away and clapping. And then I heard my mother say, I think he's one of them. And my heart went cold. I thought, they knew. And I wanted to, I wanted them to stop laughing. But then it was all over, all over. They hugged me and kissed me, and uh, and I thought they've they've forgotten. It's okay. And there wasn't anyone around in your life at that time for her to describe one of them. So men who liked men. There was no sense of anyone in your life who was homosexual. No, and indeed, I mean, even though I could read at an early age, I don't think 
then I would have been reading the darker columns of the the Sunday newspapers where that was the only place where homosexuality was was reflected. And I I learned that later. So no, but there was that sense of being outside the tribe. You weren't. You, You weren't one of us. You were one of them. You did, though, find your tribe and and Mm. at a surprisingly young age because your talent was spotted at school and and you you went off to to do an audition for the musical Oliver in the West End and, and in fact, were cast as Oliver's understudy and one of of Fagin's boys. And and that completely and utterly changed your life, completely turned. Actually, the, the precursor for the change in my life was failing my 11 plus. The big thing that uh, I didn't even know I was taking it. And I look back and I think if I passed my 11 plus and I'd gone to a grammar school, I wouldn't I wouldn't have had the trajectory and the life that I've had now. And that is why I don't believe in the concept of failure. Failure to me, what other people call failure is for me evidence that someone's tried to change something and change something and make it different. So I went to this secondary modern school at the age of 11 where I was going to be turned into a clerk or a or a builder or whatever, and I, a docker, uh, perhaps. a docker. Well, that my my dad put my name down at the Port Labour Board when I was when I was born, so that that was his intention for me, and 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 somehow again because I, I hang around hung around with the girls and not with the boys, I ended up in this drama lesson at lunchtime, and and the teacher spotted something, the importance of. Uh, art and drama and all of that in schools is crucial. He spotted something and my energy and my, my my imagination went into that rather than causing trouble because I was a rebel. And I didn't impersonate, I, d- I sang a song uh, called Strolling and, I, and then I did at the end of term school show an impersonation of Eartha Kitt, this 11 year old brought on on the back of a chair, not a slither of dark makeup on my face. And my mum stood up evidently and shouted out, here, 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 he's got my cocktail dress on. <laughs> and, and there was a, a, a talent scout who made the connection between my Eartha kit and Oliver in the West End. And a week after my 12th birthday, which was the earliest you could go on a West End stage, I walked out onto the stage into a world where I absolutely belonged, a world, a world of other people who were different and nobody batted an eyelid. I described the, uh, what we used to call them then, the Nancy boys backstage who used to go arm in arm wearing more eye makeup than, than the women. <laughs> and, and, I, and it was a bus journey, a one-hour bus journey from my home in the East End to the West End. And there I discovered uh, other boys uh, like me who were different and nobody cared. All they cared about was, did you turn up at the theatre on time? Did you go on stage and did you do it all in the right order? But again, a show with a lot of young boys in uh, attracted uh, a lot of men who were interested in uh, trying to seduce uh, young boys. And, and yeah, I mean, there, there was an awful lot of predatory behaviour around you. A man who who decided he was going to be your manager lied to you about being married with children, and lied to your parents about that, and and continued to have a relationship with you in as much as he thought it was a relationship. That 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 
felt in the book as though this was something that you had just learned to accept and use that switch in your head just to just to keep it separate from the rest of your life. The first the first night it happened, I I remember when he got into bed with me, and and I thought this isn't fair. This isn't fair. And I, f- I found a switch in my head. He didn't hurt me physically. And then once I found that switch in my head to separate my head away from the rest of my body, I was okay. And I would use that switch during the time that my parents allowed me to be with him. And he was very clever, engineered it very well. And, and then later on, uh, I would find use for that switch time and time again. But But within all of that, that darkness, you survive by finding this other part of you, by finding this other life where your focus and your memory becomes the good things. And I, I, think, I think I say in the book, I certainly feel it, that there were some elements that he introduced into my life that, that were good. So I, I, I know what I gained, but I will never know what I lost. Let's just pause for a moment. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. Michael Cashman, you have this ability in your writing to completely draw the reader in. And one of the things that you do so brilliantly in this memoir is to chronicle London and gay London in the 1960s and and, and 70s, a a world in which you were at the centre in many, many respects and you made friends and 
And I, I wonder how you remember it now, because your depiction of it in the book is so vibrant. That's not to say there isn't a dark dimension to it. There clearly is, not least because homosexual relationships were still illegal, particularly for somebody like yourself, who at criminal. that time we were criminal, who under 21. So that only changed in 1967. So just just tell us a little bit about when you look back now, what, what you think about that time. What I th- what I think about that time is how incredible that we survived psychologically intact. The, the clubs and the bars that I was introduced to at the age of fifteen and a half by uh, I'll call him Ian Taylor because I only call him Ian in the book. He said, oh, I'll introduce you to a world. He said, where there's men. He said, and they'll buy you a drink. He said, and you'll have great sex. And, <laughs> and for a 15-year-old who, you know, I knew I was gay. I was desperate and I'd learned the term gay instead of having to call myself queer because that's how you identified. And 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 so we created this this world where we could escape to. But you left that world immediately. You headed back towards home or towards work. Even within that world, you you lived with the knowledge that somebody might walk inside that bar by accident and they might be from your other world. And and I think, looking back, we created this world so that, so that it would stop us going insane, that we, we could have periods in our week when we could be ourselves, when we could breathe out. When I walked down into that. I can see it now every time I pass it in Darbley Street in in Soho. And it's uh, a basement. Basement. You were bzzz, and down we went down the stairs and then bzzz, another. And then the door opened and I walked in and these coloured lights and there were boys my own age dancing cheek to cheek. I think they might have even been singing about going off to San Francisco with feathers and in, in their hair. And 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 again, that sense of belonging uh, and why it's so vivid is is because each day we were battered with the fact that, oh, if you came out out of the, the, a pub or a club and you even attempted to pick up another man, you could be arrested for uh, soliciting for an immoral purpose, procuring. If you walked out of a, a place too flamboyantly, you could be arrested for behavior likely to cause a breach of the peace. And people were. And it wasn't until I was 16 uh, and a half, going on 17, that it was decriminalized. So all of my, uh, my well, at 15 and 16, I, I was indulging, even by going to these clubs, indulging in criminal activity. And that's why it's so vivid. Seeing those women, working women, hanging out of the windows along Berwick Street and Ian calling up to them and knowing them all by their first name and they and them knowing him. The 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 clubs, the bars, the night the night buses that got you home or it, it's so vibrant because that was the colour in one's life. The rest of it you used tones of grey so that you could fit in. Your your career went from strength to strength. You were cast in films, in one instance where the film director took advantage of you too, whom you name. I, I, I just, I, I'm interested in your, your own sense of psychological well-being. At that time, clearly lots of things were going well. You were earning money. Mm. Um, 
And and I, I just wonder about whether you felt at ease in those times or whether there was always still this kind of constant tension between the life that you lived in that world that you had made your own and the life, that, the world that you'd left behind, your family. The honest answer is I don't know. I think that is why for many years I, I, I wouldn't give it space in, in, in my head. Uh, when I did look at it, I used to look at it with a, a smile, with a laugh, uh, as if it had happened to somebody else, somebody I didn't know. Perhaps I, perhaps I treated it all as a film inside my head that I could run and rerun when I needed to. But I, I think I, I managed, <laughs> I was about to say, survive intact. Uh, uh, because of... My imagination, my, 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 my joy of life and, and the fact that also, to be honest, to be absolutely honest, when it happened, because I knew I was different, I thought, yeah, that happens to me because I'm different. That happens to me. When I learned the term for what I was, that happens to me because I'm a queer. That's what happens to queers. And that is why it is so wrong that anyone should carry that with them, either as a child or as an adult, that firmly in their brain is that they are inferior, so it doesn't matter. And I don't know, maybe that's where my my battle against injustice comes from, because I look back at, what, at the injustices done solely because we were seen as different and dispensable. We'll talk about your activism in just a moment, but there's a there's a step in between what you're talking about and the activism, which is you being cast as the first gay character in the the most popular soap opera at the time. I mean, EastEnders was watched, I think, by 17 million plus people at at, at some you know at, at its height, mm. the height of its popularity, which was around about the time when you were you were cast. I I, I just wonder whether you did feel at some level an ease and also a, a mission to try and, and do something when you agreed to be cast in that or you took that role because clearly that was going to make a huge impact and it did. It, it, it certainly did but did I have the intention to set out on the path of activism? Absolutely not. At one point I, I thought of calling the book The Accidental Activist and um, Interestingly, a little anecdote, somebody did a, an astrological natal chart for me, someone I'd never met, and they had sent back the tape, and, and this was about 19, so I was about 23, 25, and he said, mm, this is very interesting, Michael, looking at this aspect, yes, it suggests that you will become a like a, a gay leader of a brotherhood. And, uh, and I, I, I thought, you must be joking. No way. Absolutely. <laughs> I've still got the tape. If ever anyone wants me to play it, I will play it. And I, I was out to myself. I wasn't, I, I was semi out in the profession. I was out to my agent. I certainly wasn't out to my, my parents. So when I went into EastEnders, it, it was at a time when the depiction of gay men, uh, homosexuality in general was probably at its worst this century aids and hiv from from, from which people were dying uh, was depicted as the gay plague people were told in the newspapers and and by and from pulpits and and others that they could catch it 
So when I went into the show uh, and it was revealed before I was even on screen, there were questions in Parliament as to why uh, in a family show they were having a homosexual, given that AIDS was swirling around the country. And we stuck at it. The, the, the reaction from the press uh, was, I don't think Paul and I, my, my late husband, uh, had expected that. The ferocity of the attack, outing him to his family and friends, the location of our address so that a brick came through the window and it, it wouldn't be the last brick. But strangely enough, I, I just got on with it. We had that first gay kiss in 1987, which was a peck on the forehead. And again, questions in Parliament. The media, the, the tabloid media, went mad. Moral outrage. Uh, and, and it was said that if they didn't take the characters out of the show, then they had to take the show off air. But the BBC just stuck to it. And it was something that happened in 19, the end of 1987 when the Thatcher government brought in the first anti-lesbian, gay and bisexual law. This was Section a, 28. Section 28. And, I, and, and there was going to be a march. And I knew that I had to be on that march. We, we should explain the, 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 the details of, of Section 28, which was essentially to stop schools and local authorities who are in charge of schools from intentionally promoting the idea of being gay or gay literature or anything like that. And you quote it accurately, but of course, intentionally was an amendment that we got in. Uh, we, was, we asked the government, give us a definition of promotion. Are you saying that if a local authority has a concert hall and it and it does the works of Tchaikovsky, uh, that it's promoting homosexuality? And of course, they, they they couldn't define it properly because they were responding to the populism led largely by the Daily Mail and the Sun, the populism of the day, that somehow a gay man equated to a paedophile, and, um, and and we still see it now in in. The Britain of today, the protests against schools that were that are teaching inclusive relationship education, and that's informed by religious groups in particular. It's informed by religious groups misusing religions uh, because uh, it's uh, it, it's about power, power over people, not liberating people with power. Yeah, controlling people exactly. in some way. Yeah. yeah. So, so the that campaign I got involved in that campaign because I had a high media profile I suddenly was thrown to the front and I was there with uh, Ian McKellen we were called Shakespeare and Soap <laughs> I, knew, I knew which one I was um, and and we along with others brilliant activists we won the arguments as to why section 28 shouldn't become law and we were defeated it became law but then out of that, out of finding my voice, uh, Ian and I and, and others like the brilliant Lisa Power, um, we formed Stonewall so that another Section 28 would never happen again. And I think if I hadn't gone on that march, if I hadn't known that it was the day when I would become my father's son, if I, had, if I hadn't done that, I don't think I'd, I'd be where I am now. Explain that that phrase, my father's son. Ah, my dad was always very uncomfortable. He, he said to my mum, he said, I don't mind him being gay, but does he have to go on the news about it? <laughs> um, he was a, a, the old school. When I 
came out to him when I was 26, he stormed out of the room and said he didn't want to know. And many years later, after I left EastEnders, I did a documentary about discrimination against lesbians and gay men and where it came from. And he and my mum phoned me, as they always did after anything I did, and said, we're proud of you. And the next day he rang and said he, he was proud again and, and, and told me that his landlord of his pub had put a pint on the bar for him because he said, that's for you, Johnny, for your son's documentary. And my dad said, he said, I just want to tell you that I'm proud of you. I said, yes, yes, you said that. He said, and that I, I love you. I love you. And I could hear him getting emotional. I held on to it. And I think that was the day he realised that if he'd been gay and he'd had exactly the same opportunities and the same choices, he would have done exactly the same. So that was the day I became my father's son when I stood up and said, you can't do that. There's a lot in the in the book about the way in which you meeting your late husband changed your life and mm. made you the person that, that you are, partly because of the openness that he, I suppose, gave you permission to to live within. Yes. Um, just, just tell us a little bit about the importance of, of that relationship. Well, first of all, it's, it was a relationship that shouldn't have worked. It was 13 years between us. And he get, he, we, we, we were working together in uh, Scarborough, in, in, uh, the East Yorkshire coast. And then he came to London and lived with me. We lived together. Again, it was illegal. Our relationship was illegal because the, he was below the age of 21. And I, I honestly didn't believe that someone that wonderful could love me. I spent the first two years of our relationship pushing him away. He'd given up everything to come and join my life. And when we nearly split up, I realised I'd given up absolutely nothing. And and I got off on feeling bad about myself. And we very nearly split up, and then and we decided that we would have a different relationship, an open relationship. Uh, and this was the most difficult thing, and it had to be based on honesty. I'd been brought up on secrets and lies and burying things and I thought and this was my biggest biggest challenge and what he taught what he taught me was that I was worthy of being loved that I, I could be loved and that someone wouldn't hurt me someone wouldn't leave me but it had to be based on honesty and integrity and 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 he he had the, how he put up with it. I don't know, but he had such patience. Because again, when my my sexual indiscretions, and he taught me the difference between love and sex. You know, it it, it is not for uh, uh, for for good reason that there's the large deal of distance between the brain and the groin, because one gets separated very quickly from the other. And and he he taught me so much about letting go. But my God, he reinvented the word fun. I mean, he was the personification of naughtiness. I mean, the things we used to get up to and the the joy, the absolute joy. You know, as as an actor, you you were always taught you had to put money aside because there, you know, there were dark days ahead. 
and of course I believe that coming from that 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 kind of poverty of the East End. And so when he first said to me, "Where were we, where are we going on holiday?" I nearly choked. I said, "Actors don't go on holiday," <laughs> but he taught me that actually it's not just you don't just live life; you love life. I'm, it's quite clear from how you speak about him that you miss him terribly. He 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 died in 2014. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm interested in this idea of a life that was informed by necessity of secrets and lies and and darkness, and your role as a member of the European Parliament as and a politician. You know, politicians have the most appalling reputation and. And yet you had gone from hiding and hiding from yourself and then being this completely open, you were the first openly gay uh, elected, Labour elected member of the European Parliament. And, and, and I wonder how much, how important it became to you to live your life as a politician and an activist, honestly and openly too. I think that that is um, what... I experienced through Paul and what I experienced through my time on EastEnders, which is that the, the more secrets you have, the more vulnerable, vulnerable you become and the less you're in control of, of your life and what you want to do. I was the first openly gay member of, of the European Parliament for the United Kingdom. And I just thought, get out there, get on, get on with it in exactly the same way. Because it's in, it's essential that you carry the real you into politics. I, I don't I don't think uh, I think politicians aren't aren't really properly understood. I think we expect our politicians to fit a stereotype. We we don't allow people to fail, and if we don't allow people to fail, then mediocrity will thrive. And and so in. When I went into in, into politics, and even that stunned me, when Margaret McDonough, who became the first woman general secretary of the Labour Party, but she was the London regional organiser, and I was at home doing some DIY, and Margaret phoned, and she said, I think, you know, there's, there's a chance for you to run for the European Parliament. I said, no, Margaret, sorry, I'm sanding the floor. <laughs> um, and I said, I'll call you back. And Paul came in, and Paul said, why not? And I said, well, I look, look at me, I, you know, I left school at the age of 12. I, I didn't go to university. I, he, and he said, just say yes, have a go, try. And that's what I mean. He was in many ways different trampolines in my life. He gave me a base from which I could go to jump to places that I, I never experienced. And so when I went into politics, I knew, especially European politics, there is no way that I was going to get the credit for anything happened that was good, that we just had to get on with doing the job and let anything we do speak for itself. And I think once you get round that and once you get round the fact that you've got to have the courage to be disliked, the courage to be unpopular in the short term, because that's what leadership is, then then it, it's a it's a it's a brilliant job. But don't go into politics in order to be liked and don't go into it in order to be loved because otherwise you're mad at the beginning of the process rather than maddened by the process itself. <laughs> but I had a brilliant 15 years working with people from different countries, different cultures, different approaches, but with an intention to agree. 
an intention to achieve something that you could never achieve by acting alone. And that is what I find so strange that Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party, which has that as one of its basic tenets, achieving by common endeavour, that he couldn't, he couldn't get that. But that 15 years for me was a, a very proud time. And, and there are many things that I'm proud of. You know, the accession process, watching countries willing to go through hoops because they want to come into the EU, that they want to pool by consent their sovereignty to achieve much more. In, in Bulgaria, one of the countries that I worked on for, for the accession, I remember ar arguing with King Simeon II, I think he was, the Simeon II movement. And I said, you know, you've got to bring forward these changes on gender equality and disability and and race, ethnicity, religion, uh, sexual orientation. You've got to do it. I said, blame us in Europe. I said, or lead and say it's right for the country's future. But whatever you're going to do, whoever you're going to blame, you've got to do it, that accession process. Bringing about change, yes, of course, that will happen. But accelerating that change is something that I'm... Uh, uh, I'm proud of. There, there are still so many battles to be fought on the when it comes to prejudice against people for all kinds of different reasons. And and I, you strike me as a man now who is entirely at ease in his own skin. And and I wonder how much fight you still have left in you for those things that you know need to change in this country alone. I think. Most of us have fight in us, but we fight reluctantly. And because we fight reluctantly, I like to think we can achieve. I, I, I have a lot of fight left in me. Paul gave me two amazing gifts. Just before he died, I was with him throughout those last few days and, the, and right the way to the end. But that morning before he died, when the brilliant... Uh, Aisha Meyer at the Royal Marsden told him that she could do no more. He gave me this gift when he said, now we know, now we know, and I'm ready. And to be told by someone that you love probably more than you love yourself, that I have no fear of death, that they're okay with it, is something that has no price to it. It protects me for the rest of my life. And the fact that he died has taken away my fear of death and no one can hurt me. Yes, they can bruise me, but no one can really hurt me. So that means the fight in me is perhaps a bit more ferocious and we are going to have to fight in this country. Uh, I see it now in the, in the political language. I see it in the media language, the depiction of strangers as a threat, the foreigner as a threat. The xenophobia, the rising racism and anti-Semitism, the rising misogyny. Uh, and we have to connect with the, the, the battles and the injustices meted out against others. Because Pastor Nymula put it so brilliantly and Shakespeare put it brilliantly before him that if we don't speak out for others, then come our turn, it, uh, there won't be anyone left. And that is why the issue around what's happened, the, the misrepresentation of trans women uh, and trans men uh, as a threat is not dissimilar 
to the way Section 28 and my history that actually gay men were always equated uh, as paedophiles. Uh, equally, the, um, the wonderful head teachers who are there teaching inclusive relationship education, and yes, that includes LGBT. I was shocked when I went to the hearing for the permanent injunction up in Birmingham to prevent the protests, to hear the phrase LGBT used as if it was a threat to children, that LGBT books were a threat to schools. If we take our eyes away from history, when we turn and look forwards, the past is in front of us. That mustn't happen again. And leaving the EU gives gives a kind of canvas for people to paint difference as a threat and as something that undermines us. And that's worrying for me. Michael Cashman, thank you for sharing your remarkable life. Thank, thank you. you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.